If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Genesis chapter 32. If you're wondering why I'm hobbling, I've torn some more cartilage in my knee, had to sit down during that last song so that I don't collapse during the sermon. If I do, I'm going to tag, as I'm going down, I'm going to tag Matt. He's going he's gonna to grab my notes, and he's just going to finish up. It's gonna be not, we're not going to miss a beat, okay? So don't worry. It's all good. Genesis chapter 32, we're continuing our study, going through the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Jacob now. The last time we were in this book, we saw Jacob as he was preparing to enter back into Canaan. If you remember, he had spent 20 years in Paddan Aram, serving his uncle, soon to become or soon became his father-in-law, Uncle Laban. 20 years prior, he had left the promised land. He had left Canaan, partly because he was looking for a wife in Paddan Aram in his homeland, his his, uh, mother's homeland. But part of why he was leaving Canaan was because he was being pursued by his twin brother Esau, from whom he had stolen his birthright as well as the blessing of the firstborn son. So now, after 20 years in Paddan Aram, Jacob has two wives, their two servants, 11 sons, one daughter, and a very impressive array of donkeys and camels and sheep and goats. And he stands on the shores, the banks of the Jabbok River, ready to cross over into the promised land, the land that God had promised to him back in Bethel that he would bring him back to. But there's someone waiting for him on the other side of the river, Esau. He's still there. The twin brother from whom he had tricked into selling him his birthright for a bowl of soup. The twin brother from whom he had stolen the blessing of the firstborn son by tricking his father, their father, Isaac, by dressing up and pretending like he was Esau. We should recall Esau's own words from chapter 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, listen to this, the days of mourning for my father Isaac are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This is why Jacob fled to Paddan Aram in the first place. And now that he's heading back into Canaan, he knows who's waiting for him. He knows that Esau is there, and he is desperately afraid. Earlier in chapter 2, we learned that, that Jacob sent messengers on ahead into on the other side of the river to find out about Esau. And when those messengers came back, Jacob learned from them that Esau was approaching him. He was coming to meet him, and he wasn't alone. He was bringing 400 men with him. And in Jacob's mind, this was not a welcoming party. This was an army. This was, this was an invasion, a conquering army that was coming along with Esau to meet Jacob. So what does Jacob do? He plans and he prays. The prayer is recorded earlier in chapter 32, verses 8 through 12, as he Uh, seemingly very heartfelt, genuine, desperate prayer for God to save him and deliver him from his brother Esau. 
So he prays. It's the first recorded prayer of the patriarch in Scripture. But then he plans, and he takes matters into his own hand. His plan is twofold. Number one, he separates everybody, all, all that he has. He separates his family and his servants and his flocks and herds into two groups so that if Esau comes against one of his groups, at least he'll have the other half still. Seems pretty practical. That The other part of his plan, step two of his plan, is to send this enormous gift to Esau. It's a bribe is what it is. I counted it up. It's over 550 animals. That's quite a gift. It's a bribe. In an attempt to appease Esau so that, so that when Jacob finally meets him, maybe his brother's hatred of him will be appeased by this bribe. The first part of his plan seems practical, but with this second part, it's clear evidence that Jacob is yet again, yet again, he's taking matters into his own hands and trusting his own ability to work the system to ensure that things will work out his way. This is what Jacob has been doing all of his life, literally from the moment of his birth. As you recall, Jacob came out of his mother's womb grabbing his brother's heel. His name, Jacob, means heel grabber. I don't know if you know that, Jacob, but heel grabber. I don't know if you grabbed your brother's heel. You can now because it's part of your name. His name means heel grabber. It means one who supplants, one who seeks to deceive to get his way. And ever since then, he's been living that out in his life. He took his brother's birthright, as we said, for a bowl of soup. Now, surely Esau was partly to blame for that because he was living his life based on his own passions in the moment. But Jacob, his brother, took advantage of his weakness in that regard and tricked him and got his birthright from him. Later, as we've also said, he dressed up as his brother and deceived their father Isaac and, and stole the blessing of the firstborn son, which was reserved for Esau because he came out first. Later, when Uncle Laban in Paddan Aram gave Jacob a dose of his own medicine by taking some of the, the sheep and the goats that were really his, what does Jacob do? He takes matters into his own hands and he tries this genetic experiment, right? To try to make some of the sheep and goats spotted and speckled by putting spotted trees and spotted and striped uh, sticks in front of them. It was very weird. And what's even weirder is that it worked. And some of, the, some of the sheep and the goats came out spotted and speckled and striped, and so they belonged to him as according to Laban's plan. But as Jacob would later admit, it wasn't because of his genetic experiment to put speckled trees in front of the sheep. It was because God was looking out for him. Because God was watching over him just as he had promised to do. And it was God who was blessing him all along. So Jacob's been vacillating in his life. He's been vacillating between trusting God and taking matters into his own hands his whole life. At times it seems as though he's really relying on the Lord. At other times he's clearly not relying on the Lord. Instead he's relying on his own ingenuity, his own craftiness, his own ability to manipulate people and circumstances. And so now he is today. 
here at the, on the banks of the Jabbok River, a fast-flowing tributary of the, of the Jordan River, ready cr- to cross over back again into Canaan and ready to see his brother Esau again with his 400 men. So what's he going to do? Is Jacob going to trust the Lord? Is he going to rely on God at this time? He's been vacillating back and forth. Or is he going to rely on his own strength, his own ingenuity, his own craftiness to work his way? Well, unfortunately, we're not going to find out this morning because that's in chapter 33. But what we will see in these closing 11 verses of chapter 32 is we will see the Lord prepare him for that meeting. Prepare him and equip him to rely on the Lord and nothing else to face Esau and every other giant that he might face in his life. And through this story, we'll also learn how to face those big, scary giants that seem to intersect with our life at various times. So let's read Genesis 32, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel Do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Would you pray with me? Father, we count it a privilege to meet together this morning and to come before you in worship. We continue in that spirit of worship now as we turn to your word and ask in faith, Father, that you would speak to us from it. Pray for every single person in this room and downstairs and listening online. And myself as well, Father, would you meet with us now? Would you do what you promised to do with your word and drive it deep into our heart? Father, what a failure it would be if we just walked away understanding this story better. We want to be impacted by it. We want our soul to be trained to rely on you, Father, above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story of Jacob wrestling with a man in this passage is a very familiar one. You've probably heard it before. Probably heard many sermons preached on it. Many Sunday school lessons talked about it. 
But although it is very familiar, it is also often very misunderstood. There's a lot of ambiguity that Moses includes in this narrative that only serves to add to the mystery of the story itself. First, we, we find this river crossing at night. It happens under cover of darkness, which would have been quite dangerous in this fast-flowing river as his family and his animals are passing with absolutely no light whatsoever. And so it happens under cover of darkness. There's mystery surrounding that. And then why does Jacob send everyone ahead of him? He sends everybody else across so that he's standing alone on the other side. We don't know. We're not told why. Perhaps he's afraid. Perhaps he knows something's going to happen. We don't know. There's mystery that's built into this narrative. For whatever the reason is, we find Jacob now alone in the middle of the night. And we're told that a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now that's just odd. There's no, there's no buildup whatsoever in the story. It's just out of nowhere, this man appears and begins wrestling with Jacob. And Moses, as he's writing this story, he, he keeps the man's identity a, a mystery in this story. We know who he is because we've read the story, but, but as the narrative is progressing, he's just a man. And that ambiguity adds further to the mystery of the story. Later in the story, Jacob seems to recognize him some as he causes his hip to be put out of joint with a mere touch. And he had to wonder, what kind of superhuman power is this that causes my hip to be thrown out of joint with a mere touch? And it's then that Jacob asks for a blessing. He, he seeks for a blessing from this man. Why? Because he recognized that this was no mere man. And we are certain that Jacob, at least, believes that this is God by the time he gets to verse 30. Because then he names the place Peniel. Because he says, for I have seen God face to face, and yet I live. So who is this man? Who is this person with whom Jacob is wrestling? Moses begins here by telling us that it's a man, but of course that's just for dramatic effect in the story because we're later given evidence that clearly this is not a mere man. This is not just a man like you and I. Often when this passage is preached or when it's told in Sunday school lessons, often it's interpreted as an angel. Even the famous painter Rembrandt, I put his picture, his painting up on the screen here. He's got a famous painting that's called Jacob, Jacob Wrestles with an Angel. And it depicts, depicts an angel wrestling with Jacob and touching his hip. I'm, I'm sure that probably at the beginning of this wrestling match, Jacob probably realized that this was probably an angel. He probably thought it was an angel because we remember earlier in chapter 32, in the opening verses, God lets him see this whole camp of angels that's camped near him. So he probably thought it was an angel at first, but I don't think this is an angel. This is God. This is God with whom he wrestles. Five quick reasons why I believe this is God. First of all, like we said, he throws Jacob's hip out of socket with a mere touch. This is not just a man. 
A man can't do that. Now, perhaps an angel can. And so we need further evidence. So secondly, Jacob asked for a blessing from him. And we know only God can bless him. Angels don't do that. God does. Thirdly, the man changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. And only God can change the name of his children. And then fourthly, he, this, this man defines what this name Israel means. It says in verse 28, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. His very name, Israel, means wrestled with God. And then fifthly, after all of this, again, he names the place face to face with God because he had met with God face to face. So this is God. And beyond that, personally, I believe that this is not just a theophany, a physical manifestation of God, but I believe this to be a Christophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself. I believe this is Christ. Part of why I believe this is a Christophany is and, and not just your garden variety theophany is because in verse 29, when Jacob asks his name, Jacob knows the name of the Lord. He had prayed to him earlier in the chapter. He called him Yahweh. We see the tetragrammaton there, the capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, the, the personal name of God. He knew God's name. And so why does he ask it here? Because his name is Jesus. But Jesus doesn't get his name until he puts on flesh and he becomes the little boy of Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. But regardless, in saying, that, in saying that this is God who wrestles with Jacob, it presents us with some problems, doesn't it? Because doesn't it appear as though, at least for a time, Jacob is winning in this battle, in this match? Look at verse 25. It says, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So what's that all about? Is Moses saying that Jacob was beating God in a wrestling match? Certainly he's not saying that. But it sure seems to say that. When, when God changes Jacob's name to Israel in verse 28, he says, For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So how do we reconcile the fact that this is God that Jacob is wrestling with, and yet it seems as though, at least for a time, Jacob's winning? How do we reconcile that? Listen to the words of John Calvin as he comments on this passage. He says, the question now arises, who is able to stand against an antagonist at whose breath alone all flesh perished and vanishes away? At whose look the mountains melt? At whose word or call the whole world is shaken to pieces? To attempt any kind of contest with him would be reckless contempt. But it is easy to untie this knot, for we do not fight against him except by his own power and with his own weapons. For God, having challenged us to this contest, at the same time furnishes us with the means to resist, so that he both fights against us and for us. In short, he arranges the conflict in such a way that while he attacks us with one hand, he defends us with the other. He supplies us with more strength to resist than he uses to attack. We may rightly say that he fights against us with his left hand and for us with his right hand. 
For while he opposes us in a gentle way, he gives us invincible strength so we can overcome. I love that picture there, that God fights against Jacob with his left hand, but fights for and with Jacob with his right hand. So there's no question in my mind that this is God. And beyond that, I believe it to be Christ himself showing himself to Jacob. And he sovereignly arranges this wrestling match with Jacob. And just for sons, for a time, he lets him win, or he lets him think that he's winning. But only to a point. Only to a point. And at that point, the Lord touches his hip socket. And it's done. It's done. In an instant, Jacob receives a permanent disability that will be with him for the rest of his life. But it is also at that very instant, I believe, where Jacob realizes this is not a man. This is God. This is the Lord. And so now all he can do is hang on. He can't wrestle anymore. Try wrestling without a hip socket. Try doing anything without a hip socket. He can't wrestle anymore. So all he can do is hang on. So he hangs on with all his might. He hangs on for dear life because now he realizes this is God. And he knows he's about to cross over the Jabbok and meet his brother who is intent on killing him and has 400 men with him. And he knows he needs God even more now because his hip is out of socket. His only hope is to cling to the Lord that he would bless him. So he's not going to let go. He's hanging on for dear life. He says in verse 27, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And in his physically broken state, Jacob learns what it means to totally rely on the Lord. And friend, that's exactly why God arranged this wrestling match with him to begin with. To bring Jacob to the end of himself. To cause him to stop relying on his own trickery, his own ingenuity, his own craftiness, his own ability to manipulate situations and people. He can't think that anyway, because now he's a broken man. Literally broken of his will, broken of his stubbornness. But in his broken, now he's ready. Now he's ready to learn what it's really like to completely rely on the Lord. So what does he do? He renames him and he blesses him. The Lord renames Jacob and he blesses Jacob. In renaming him, he first gets him to admit his own name. He says, what's your name? God knows his name is Jacob. He's not doing this so that he would understand what his name is. But he gets Jacob to say it. Verbally, audibly, so that Jacob might own the reality of what that meant for him. Because it wasn't just a name for him. It was who he was. It's who he was. He was a heel grabber. He was a supplanter. He was one who lived his life by trickery and conniving and manipulating to try to get things to work out his own way. And so the Lord brought him first to a place of admitting that that's who he was. 
And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but now your, your name will be Israel, the nation's namesake. The name Israel means God contends or, or God strives. And don't you know that the Israelites, years later, centuries later, even today, would think back on this scene. Every time that they considered their identity as Israelites, they would think of Jacob, who became Israel. And they would be encouraged that God would contend for them, with them, and sometimes against them for their own good. And they'd be encouraged. And so he renames them, and then God blesses Jacob at the end of verse 29. We're not told what the blessing was. We're just told that he blessed him there. Whatever the blessing was, Jacob walks away limping, but better equipped to rely on God in every circumstance of life, even that of meeting up again with his brother and the 400 men. So the chapter closes with Jacob walking away, limping across the Jabbok with the sun rising over the eastern horizon. He's forever changed. He's forever changed inside and out by what happened to him on the banks of the Jabbok that day. He'll always walk with a limp from this day forward. He's broken physically, but in his weakness, in his weakness, church, he's found a strength that is a thousand times stronger, and that strength is a strength of the Lord, in whom now he knows how to rely on fully. So as we step away from this story and we seek to discover what lesson God has for us in this mysterious narrative that we have in chapter 32, and seeking to understand that lesson for us, we need to first ask, what was the lesson for the Israelites to whom Moses first wrote this story and penned this account? What lesson would they have derived from this story of their namesake? We know that Genesis was written by Moses. We know that it was written sometime later in his life. I like to think it was probably during the wilderness wanderings after they had escaped from uh, slavery in Egypt. But during the 40 years after the spies had gone into the land, you remember the story, Moses sent the spies into the promised land to scope it out. And they came back and said, it's great. It's all God promised it to be. Plus it's got giants. And what did the nation of Israel do? What did that generation do? Instead of trusting God and walking across that Jordan and doing things his way, they did things their way. And they said, no, it's too, it's too hard. I'm not going to face that giant. And so they chose to not trust in the Lord. They chose to trust in themselves. They chose to stay in the wilderness. And the Lord said, okay, then none of you will ever go. That entire generation would need to die off. I think it's during this time period that Moses wrote the book of Genesis during those 40 years of wanderings when the Lord led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But in that next generation, the generation of Joshua and Caleb, we hear 
They, they were hearing this story. It, it was they who then would be called upon to cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land after all of their parents had died off, including Moses himself. But the giants were still there. The fortified cities like Jericho were, were still there, just like Esau was still there on the other side of the Jabbok with his 400 men. So they would hear this story about their namesake, about Jacob, who became Israel through this incredible account. And they would be reminded that the only way that they could enter into the promised land was by trusting in the Lord alone. That's the lesson that they would walk away from. The only way that they could face the giants, the only way they could defeat the fortified cities was by relying on Yahweh and not their own ability to fight their own way through. They would be reminded that the only way this could happen is by trusting the Lord, relying on his, on his strength and not their own, relying and trusting on his plan and his ways, whatever they were, however weird they were, like marching around a city for seven days and then blowing your horns like he, asked, he would ask them to do with Jericho. And we remember what happened, right? The walls came tumbling down. They learned their lesson to rely on the Lord and his strength and his ways and his promises and not their own strength and their own wisdom. And in the name of Israel and in that custom that is articulated in the last verse there, this custom that that the Israelites from that day forward would would not eat the sinew that attaches the thigh to the hip bone because they were remembering this scene. They were remembering what God did with Israel. And in this, they would be reminded that sometimes, in order to, to be brought to a place of complete surrender to God and trust in Him instead of self, Sometimes, in order to be brought to that place, God would first have to bring them to the end of themselves, to the end of their strength, because only then they would see that their only hope, their only hope, was to trust in Yahweh. Friend, this is the same lesson that we pull from this passage as New Testament believers today. There are times in the life of every believer when you will come to a Jabbok. And there's going to be a giant on the other side. Something so big and so scary that you know you can't face it alone. And you know that you need to rely on the Lord. But the problem is, you don't know how much you need to rely on the Lord. You don't know how desperate you are for his strength and his wisdom and his patience and his hope. You think there's a small part that you can rely on your own ingenuity, your own strength. And so what does God do? He wrestles with you. He brings you to the end of yourself so that you might see that you have to hope in him alone. You wrestle with him in prayer. And just like he did with Jacob, he shows himself to you. Just like he did with Job, he will reveal himself to you as the omnipotent and sovereign God 
who is good and holy and righteous and trustworthy and faithful and that his steadfast love for his children never ends. But that's only going to be revealed through wrestling with him. Sometimes God will grant you that incredibly important reminder by wounding you in some ways. Listen to Lawrence Richards who wrote the Bible teacher's commentary as he writes on this. I love this. Sometimes a wound is a very special act of God's grace. He goes on, he says, Jacob struggled to hold on to the man, for after suffering the wound, he must have realized how much more powerful the visitor was than himself, and he wanted his blessing. How often we need to be wounded for the same reason. It's easy for us to trust our own skills and abilities, but sometimes a wound, physically or in a broken relationship or in the failure of a much-loved plan, will remind us to cling to God again, totally dependent on Him for blessing. How good it is that God doesn't hold back from hurting us for our own good. That's rich. And so sometimes God will take us to a place, He will bring us to a place of complete trust in in Him by wounding us such that we cannot trust in ourselves any longer because we're broken. We must rely on him. And as the sun rises in the sky for us on a new day, as we're limping around in our brokenness, we are then stronger than we've ever been. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul testifies about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says this? So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, excuse me, God had been giving him incredible revelations. I mean, like amazing revelations. The uh, uh, revelation of a man caught up to the third heaven. What's that about? I don't know. Paul, Paul got those kind of revelations. And he said, listen, to keep me from becoming conceited about them, What did God do? A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, wounds, hip sockets out of joint, whatever the case might be. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, God prepared me for ministry by humbling me by humbling me in a very vivid way, a very real way. And in my weakness, I was strong because of Christ in me. Because I realized I was relying on the grace of God. That's all I had, and it was enough. My friend, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
as your Savior this morning, as your Lord. Before you cross that Jabbok and face that giant, whatever it is for you, don't be surprised if the Lord, in his kindness, wrestles you into submission and brings you to the end of yourself such that in your brokenness, with childlike faith, you reach up and you grab the hand of your father. And he leads you across that jabbok to face the giants. Not in your strength, but in his. And if he is so gracious to teach you that lesson, you may walk away limping, but you will walk away stronger because you will have learned what it means to rely on the Lord. I've faced a handful of giants in my walk with Jesus. As I know many of you, as I look out in this room, have as well. I know that you've faced giants as well. And some, sometimes he leads us into a time of wrestling with him in prayer. And sometimes through these occasions... The circumstances of life seem to orchestrate together to bring it to an intersection where we are wounded. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's relationally, but you're struck down. And it's in that moment that you realize, I go back to those moments in my life and I realize my only hope is the Lord. My only hope is to cling to him until he blesses me and leads me through. I don't know what the giant is on the other side of the Jabbok for you. My exhortation is to trust in the Lord, not your own ways, not your own strength. What does that mean for you? How does that flesh out in your life? Stop trusting in your own ingenuity, your own craftiness, your own ability to to manipulate the situation. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his ways. And with simple childlike faith, reach up and grab his hand. And he'll walk with you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you don't know him as Lord, there's application here for you as well. Because the only way into the promised land is through Christ. It's the only way. And so in his mercy, he will lead you to wrestle with him in faith. And you'll wrestle with his divinity. And you'll wrestle with his humanity. And you'll wrestle with his resurrection. And in this wrestling, friend, he's going to show you the end of yourself. And how utterly unrighteous and undeserving you are of forgiveness. And not only will you walk away limping spiritually, but you will be wholly undone in your hopes of earning forgiveness and eternal life. But it is with this spiritual limp that you will walk across that line of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your substitute. Trusting in his finished work on the cross as your only hope for rescue 
from judgment. For friend, it is this Christ who wrestled with the Father in Gethsemane in prayer and said, yet not my will, but your will be done. And then went to Calvary for you and I. If you want to be reconciled to God, if you want to be forgiven, you must go through Christ and you must wrestle with the gospel. And then you must emerge from that wrestling match, repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to save you. Let's pray. Our God and King, we are so grateful to call you Father. And Father, we who have walked with Jesus a while, we recall... We recall those Jabbok's, we recall those giants, and we recall ways in which you wounded us. And we weren't very happy about it at the time. But looking back now with eyes of faith, we see what you were doing. You were bringing us to the end of ourselves, where we would not be tempted to trust in ourselves because we were broken. All we could do is trust in you, and you were enough. Father, I pray for that person in this room, perhaps, who's experiencing that kind of wrestling right now. Maybe you've wounded them recently, and they don't see the end of the story yet. Oh, Lord, would you give them the eyes of faith? to see that you're walking with them, that you are granting to them the strength and the wisdom and the patience and the hope that they need to faithfully walk through and face that giant. And Father, we pray for the person in this room who doesn't know you by faith. Maybe they're trying to earn forgiveness. Maybe they're trying to earn righteousness, be accepted by you according to what they've done in their life or what they're trying to do with their life. God, would you lead them to wrestle with Christ, your son? Would you lead them to behold the Savior who lived the perfect life that we never could, died on a cross in our place? And would you grant to them faith to trust in your son Jesus as their only hope? Lead them across that line of faith so that they might be justified by Jesus' righteousness. Father, we thank you so much that you stand ready to provide us everything that we need. And we thank you that you do lead us through times in our life where we simply, we have to be brought to the end of ourselves or else we wouldn't trust in you. And so in faith, we thank you for that. We ask that you continue to do that until our faith is made sight and you bring us home. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.